Well, good morning. It's good to be with uh, each of you, even if it's remotely and across uh, screens, um, across the city and, and the state. And even despite that, one thing that's amazing about the church calendar is that it continues no matter what. And so next Sunday is Easter, and we're going to be celebrating it here, uh, streaming to you guys at Hope Chapel. And we'll be celebrating the risen King like we always do That also means that this morning, despite this odd way of worshiping these crazy and scary circumstances, that we're going to celebrate Palm Sunday together. And as you've heard um, uh, kind of throughout today, this morning we're going to uh, celebrate Palm uh, Palm Sunday and hopefully correct what the Jews of Jesus' time didn't do on their week of Passover, their Holy Week they didn't realize was taking place We are going to take Jesus this morning as a church, Um, even wherever we are, we're going to take Jesus as he is. That's our hope this morning. Take Jesus as he is. Um, Like many of you uh, over the past uh, couple weeks of social isolation, I actually want to just, I want to say this too. I asked um, like three or four or five different people whether I should do this or not, and they all said no, but here we are. Um, uh, I watched Tiger King this week, uh, on Netflix. And, um, if there's something about Tiger King, I don't know if you've seen or not, it's the Netflix, uh, seven episode documentary focusing on, um, big cats in America and tigers and lions and other big cats. And, um, there's all these different characters throughout America uh, of people that own big cats and some are, uh, better to these cats than others. Um, some are more eclectic than others, uh, but the biggest personality of this documentary is Joe. Joe Exotic is his name. And the story kind of centers around him. He's in rural Oklahoma. He owns one of the biggest or, or largest big cat zoos in America. And, uh, if you've been on the internet at all the past week or two, there's so much about this guy and, and there's so much about this documentary, but it's so crazy that you can't, it, it's an unspoilable show. It, it's insane. And I have to say that as I watched this show, I was fascinated by this guy. He's flamboyant. He's hilarious. He's funny. He's ridiculous. He's a little bit crazy. Um, All of these different things about Joe Exotic that I found myself drawn to. He's extremely charismatic. And one of the first things that we're told about Joe Exotic is that he is the king of of his domain. That's why it's even called Tiger King, I think. Like, the zoo is his king. And uh, the people that work for him are deeply devoted to this guy for some reason. And you see it throughout. You watch this show and you kind of begin to realize he's got a magnetism that draws you to him on some level. But here's what I have to say. As I watch the show, even from the get-go, no matter how charismatic he is, no matter how drawn to him I was, I had to realize that Joe Exotic, and this is going to rub some of you wrong, I know, he's not a great guy. (laughs) He's not a great guy at all. Actually, he um, is abrasive, and he can be very mean, and he uh, has very shady business practices, and he probably killed some of his big cats. And also, um, he is in jail. This isn't a spoiler either. I mean, it is a spoiler, but I mean, the show is so insane. This really isn't going to spoil a lot. He's probably in jail right now for, for 
potential murder uh, or attempted murder that he hired someone to kill someone else. Uh, This is not a good person. And as I was watching the show and I felt myself drawn to him, I had to come to grips with who he actually was. I actually had to take him for who he was, which is not a great guy. Now, I might be the only pastor in the world who's comparing Joe Exotic to Jesus this morning. Uh, But as I said earlier, here we are. Uh, This is exactly what the Jewish people didn't do on Palm Sunday. They so desperately wanted Jesus to be someone. Just like I so desperately wanted Joe Exotic to be this goofy, charismatic, lovable, affable guy who just owns tigers. That's not who he is. They so desperately wanted Jesus to be someone that he wasn't. They wanted him to be this earthly political force. They wanted him to come and put Israel in its rightful place and supremacy over all the nations. They wanted to give, uh, him to come and give them power and status and acclaim. To be a mighty warrior who struck down all the nations around him. And he wasn't those things. He wasn't at all. And this is how their hosannas and cries of jubilation turned to crucify him in just a few short days. This is how they chose to free a violent fighter and have Jesus die instead, crying out Barabbas in their bloodthirstiness. This is how they let their Savior, the Messiah they've been waiting for for thousands of years, die on a cross. All because they wouldn't take him for who he really was. And they missed out on the greatest gift the world's ever been given because of that. They missed out on Jesus. And church, uh, that danger is before us. We are at danger of not taking Jesus at who He is. And if we do that, we will miss Him. And here's how we do this. We, we miss Jesus when we make Him who we want Him to be. We, we have a tendency in, in our humanity and our fallenness to, to manipulate the gospel by making it what we want it to be. Making Jesus who we want Him to be and not what the Bible says the gospel is. And not who Jesus says He is. But Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the hope of this world. And He is King. Not a political ruler, but an eternal King. He reigns in justice, love, mercy, truth, grace, and power. And He is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-present. But we don't want that from Him. I know in my heart, I don't often want that from Him either. I hear from people often quoting Scripture that God is love, and that's true. But God is not just love. He's also just. He's also holy. He's also powerful. Our God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is not one thing. He's not just love, mercy, grace, holiness. He's all of those things. We can't pick and choose who we want Jesus Christ to be. We have to search Scripture, His revelation to us, to understand who He is. And take Him for who He is, all of Him, so that we don't miss Him. Here's what I want to remind all of us, Hope Chapel Church, this morning. We are living through historic times right now. We are literally living through history. And it's not fun. It's hard. It's scary. It's dangerous. It hurts. But despite our fear, our anger, our anxiety, let's not miss Jesus Christ. Because experiencing the fullness of who He is, taking Him for who He is and who He says He is and who He's revealed Himself to be, 
That is our only hope right now. It's the only thing that's going to get us through the other side of this thing. This morning, I hope we begin to take him at who he is because if we do, we will find the hope we're looking for. So how do we do this? This morning, we're going to look at three ways we must take Jesus at who he says he is. First, we're going to see that Jesus is the sovereign king. And second, we're going to see that he's the servant king. And finally, we're going to see that he's the sympathetic king. So first, Jesus is the sovereign king. Verses 1 through 3 say this, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you. Immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say to them, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. One of the, I think, my favorite things about this passage is that Jesus um, knows what's coming, right? He knows where he's entering into Jerusalem, where he'll never leave. Um, He's entering into his death. there's, There's this cloud that hangs over this event, this triumphant entry that it's been called. And it's a cloud of of darkness and death and suffering. And yet we see Jesus in control. He's calm. Ordinarily, he travels on foot, but but not today. You know, much of Jesus' ministry was veiled in the sense that he didn't stake his claim as as the God-man. He didn't reveal that he was the king over all creation. And yet in this move, in him taking control of this situation, riding in on an animal, that veil was beginning to be lifted. You know, often when um, a conquering general or king entered into the land that they had conquered, they would ride in on, not on foot, but on horseback. It was a victory parade. And Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem was, it was a pronouncement of his victory. It was a victory parade in its own right. So he, so he orders uh, the disciples to go and get this animal for him, a donkey, right? And typically, uh, people have interpreted this as a miracle. Jesus uh, miraculously knew where a donkey was and went and like kind of essentially, uh, it's kind of weird, uh, stole it, I guess would be the only uh, uh, explanation for that. But, but that's actually not a, the true kind of reading of this. Most likely, Jesus had already arranged for this donkey Um, that had never been ridden before to be uh, picked up by his disciples. So there's even something purposeful about that, right? Jesus was in control of the situation. It wasn't just something he decided to do miraculously and and a a donkey appeared for his disciples. No, he knew what he was doing. He was in control the whole time. He arranged the donkey to be there. He sent his disciples to go get it and pick it up. And he did it purposefully to fulfill the prophecy that was written about him. Verse 4 says that he did it to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Jesus, fully God, fully man, fulfills the prophecy written about him all those years before. Christ in his sovereignty, directing every step of the way. So Jesus shows his kingship and his, his sovereign power over all the events that are happening. He is in control. And, and he's not the kind of king that people expected, right? Right? And his sovereignty over the world is not exercised in a way that they wanted in this moment. And this is why they turn on him, like we mentioned earlier. The reason I bring that back up, though, is because I I worry um, that that danger is in front of us. We, too, often don't see Jesus as the king we expect or want. And we don't see his power and sovereignty played out in ways that we want either, right? Here's how I know. We often talk about God's sovereignty. We do it 
often, but I get the sense that we understand it in theory, but not in practice. Often God's sovereignty is something that we struggle to submit to, understand, have faith in. We're, we're often confused by it. What does it mean that he's sovereign over all things? What does it mean uh, that God is sovereign? Maybe uh, that's more pertinent for us this morning. What does it mean that he's sovereign while a virus is raging against the world? I'll admit that um, for me, this time of quarantine has not been good or easy for me. Um, and I say that from a place of privilege. I know I'm not someone who has gotten sick from it yet. Um, oh, God willing, I won't. And if I do, the stats say that I'm in an age demographic that I wouldn't be in considerable damage uh, or dan- uh, danger. And yet being stuck at home has been very hard for me. My best friend, Daniel, who lives in, in Greenville, South Carolina, called me on it this week. He, he texted me and said, I quote, This is the perfect storm of things that you hate. All being forced on you by an unseen and unfelt force. It's completely out of your control and beyond your comprehension. So, of course, you're going to be frustrated. And I was like, wow, thanks. He just like nailed me right there. But he's right. He knows me. I like to be in control. I do. I like to think, and I know it's perceived, it's not even real, but I like to think that I have control over situations. And man, this virus and what it's done has made me feel utterly out of control. I like to make plans. I like to stick to them. I like to preordain and plot out just about every step of my life. And that's been taken away from me, and I hate it. I do. And that feels icky to say, but it's true. And it's not all bad, right? Psalms uh, 6 praises ants because they store up food for the winter and cast judgment on the fool who doesn't. Uh, Ephesians 5 tells us to live wisely and make the most out of every opportunity. Planning is not a bad thing. The Bible blesses it in a lot of ways. But our plans, and this is what I'm learning right now, our plans must always be submitted and in submission to the sovereign king. That's the part I don't do well. Dan Doriani puts it this way. uh, Jesus does not always give us what we desire. Accepting that is part of the journey of faith. The Lord may prevent us from fulfilling our plans so that we can find his. The Lord may prevent us from fulfilling our plans so that we can find his. That is what the sovereignty of God looks like. His plan is at work and he is trying to direct and guide our steps so that we can find it. The Lord may prevent us from fulfilling our plans uh, so that we can find His. I had a lot of plans for these months in spring. Hope Chapel had a lot of plans these few months of spring. You had a lot of plans for these few months. And some of you uh, had already dreamed them up. Hadn't dreamed them up yet. You didn't even know that you had plans that you wanted to do for the spring. And yet, here we all are, connected in this. Our plans are dashed. And what if, though, the Lord is preventing us from fulfilling our plans, known and unknown, so that we can find His? And I wouldn't dream of trying to explain what Jesus' plan is in the midst of this virus, in the midst of fear, anxiety, sickness, and death. But here are three things that I'm certain of. One, the virus and destruction that it's causing did not originate from Jesus. Second, He is still sovereign in working His plan in the midst of it. Uh, And third, though this virus is dangerous and it's deadly and it's wreaking havoc across the world, it could be worse. One thing that we know is that God in his goodness restrains the effects of sin on the world. This is what common grace is. 
He never lets the effects of the fall be as bad as they could be. So he is upholding and restraining his good order even right now. Even in a global pandemic, God is restraining the brokenness and fallenness of sin. It could be worse without his grace and goodness. Now, why does he not restrain it and eradicate it completely? I don't know. We aren't God. I'm not God. You're not God. But we can't ask for it. We can plead for it. We can beg him for it and trust that he is at work and hears the pleas of his people. And ultimately, we can align our steps and our plans with his to find him in the midst of it as he holds it sovereignly in his hands. We are not alone. And this morning, we have an opportunity, an opportunity to grow in faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who promises he is good and sovereign over all things. We are all in the same boat, out of control, helpless. And that's not a bad place to be because it reminds us that when all was lost, when we are completely out of control of our faith, helpless to save ourselves, Christ still died for us. He still paid our penalty. He is still the same God, holy, good, true, upholding all things in his hands even now. Take this opportunity of being utterly helpless and out of control to grow in trusting in Jesus Christ and his good plan, his sovereign plan for the world. And that brings us to our our second point. We've seen that we must take Jesus at who he is, not who we want him to be, and that he is the sovereign king. Now we're going to see that he is the servant king. Uh, My dad has a very nice Jeep. It's red. It says pride and glory. You can see it. uh, There's a picture of it that's coming on your screen. Hopefully right now you can see it. Um, And my dad, uh, probably after his kids and his grandkids, which are also in this picture, it's uh, the Jeep, right? Family, grandkids, Jeep. And maybe his dog, Roscoe, is somewhere in there, too, who's also not pictured. He's, he'll be upset about that. Um, but I, I never uh, personally have ever been a car guy. And the reason for that is because my dad was never a car guy. Growing up, my dad always had sedans, zero flash. He had the safest, most fuel-efficient, cost-effective cars growing up. And this is what I've learned in his old age as he, not old age, he's like 60, he's young. When he got his Jeep, how excited and how happy he was about it. I realized that maybe my dad actually was a car guy. And yet, his whole life, he chose not to drive something flashy or cool. He chose to drive safe, fuel-efficient, cost-effective cars because he always put the needs of the family before his own. And he probably didn't even think about it. He didn't even probably think about it as a sacrifice. It's just who he was. The heart of uh, that is this. A person's mode of transportation says a lot about them. And my dad, his mode of transportation when we were growing up was a sedan that was safe and cost-effective because that showed who he was. He served his family first more than anything. And now his Jeep says something else about him. And he gets to live his life how he wants to, which is awesome. Um, But earlier I mentioned that Jesus took a prophecy and and he acted it out to begin to reveal who he really was to his disciples and the people of Israel. And this prophecy was from Zechariah. Matthew quotes it saying, uh, Say to the daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble 
mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And this prophecy is one that most people of Israel would have known. Uh, It was a messianic prophecy, and, and Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, he was proclaiming that he was the Messiah. He was lifting that veil that I mentioned. And his mode of transportation reveals a lot about him. If Jesus entering into Jerusalem was a victory parade, it was the most humble victory parade by a conquering king or general in history. He was riding in with a few friends on a donkey of all means of transportation. It wasn't a war horse. It wasn't a chariot. It wasn't one of those, you know, things that, um, you know, servants held and, and he was riding on it, right? No, he rode on a donkey. Humble. Jesus came to serve. And so the Israelites got his meaning completely on one hand, and they missed it by a mile in another. They understood that by riding it on a donkey, uh, he was claiming to be the Messiah, and that stirred them up. And, and they knew the rest of the passage in Zechariah, which if you look it up, um, it, it's super intense. It, it talks about the Messiah cutting, um, coming in and cutting off the chariots of his enemies, uh, breaking their battle bows, bringing war horses. It says that the Messiah's reign will be from sea to sea. The Messiah will restore his people to double what they had ever been before. And because they knew the rest of this prophecy, uh, the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, right? They cut branches from trees and they started screaming, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They, they, they were stirred up and excited. They were like, man, he's going to fulfill this whole prophecy. And Hosanna, God save us, is not what we think it is, I think, a lot of times. Hosanna, by this time in history, had turned into a nationalistic cry. Very similar to um, God save the king in England or God bless America in the States. Now, if you look at it from a certain point of view, God bless America can be a humble prayer of a Christian beseeching God for his goodness and blessing to pour out on a nation, on our nation. Or it can be the proud, arrogant word of someone who's convinced that God is on America's side, no matter what America and its people do, right? And that's what the Israelites were doing. They shouted Hosea not as a humble prayer, but Hosanna as a nationalistic cry. They felt like their time had come. The Messiah was here. And he was going to put them on top. But Jesus shows them and us something different. The sovereign king didn't come to conquer armies or nations in this world. He came to die as a humble servant. And they missed this. And it's amazing that they did. He'd been telling them this for years. He had just told them in Matthew 20, one chapter back, Jesus told them that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The kingship of Jesus for us and for Israel was to be marked by a cross and not a throne. And Brian Volk, a theologian, says this, In a matter of days, he will give his back to those who beat him, his flint-like face to those who pluck his beard. Those who care about law and order know what to do with his kind. He will be tortured publicly, vilified, executed. He will suffer horribly. He will die in shame. And, And we want to pass over this. We want to arrive at and rest in Easter But there's no way there except descent. The one way up is down. Christ came as a humble servant. He came to serve, to give his life for us so that we could be saved. 
so that all of creation could be renewed and restored to what it was meant to be. And by way of application, I think we have two opportunities in front of us this morning with all that's going on, even in the midst of a global pandemic, in light of Christ, the servant, humble king. We have an opportunity to connect more with him who serves us and to connect more with one another in service. So connecting with him. um, I don't know if you're like me uh, in our current climate, reading the news, being stuck in the house, or, or social distancing, but I think the thing that it's done for me most Um, is that it's humbled me. There was an arrogance that I had before all of this, and and the best way I could describe is an arrogance of ease. My life was comfortable, um, and I had grown to expect almost arrogantly things that have now been stripped away from me, meeting a new person and shaking their hand, hugging an old friend, going and sitting in a coffee shop and sermon writing, taking my kids to the children's museum. I've grown to expect those things. That's why I call it an arrogance of ease. I've grown to expect that that's what life was. And as soon as those portions of my life were removed, I went to despair quick. I went to anger quick. I went to frustration quick. And the Lord is revealing a lot of my own brokenness in my heart through this. And He's humbling me in the midst of it. And life has not been easy for a lot of you, even before this. Before this, you, you struggled with depression and cancer and sickness and loss of job and hard finances and death. You've already been humbled by life. You didn't have an arrogance of ease and comfort that had already been taken away from you. But what's been sober, sobering for me even more is that many of you are still struggling with depression and cancer and sickness and death. And on top of that, you are now also dealing with a global pandemic. That is humbling. Many of us have had lives, lived lives of ease and and now are being humbled into a reality that many of you have been experiencing for a long time. But I truly believe that this humbling, though it's painful, is a gift. Because it's being in being brought low that Christ meets us. It's in our weakness that Christ finds us. It's in our humbleness that Christ serves us. The way up is down. Israel missed this. They thought the way up was an upward trajectory, right? They wanted to be brought high. But Christ came low. And in His humiliation, He was exalted. He was lifted high. And we have an opportunity during this time to connect with Jesus Christ, our Savior, in ways that we never have before because we are being brought low. And in being brought low, we find Christ. And He sits on high. But we also have an opportunity to connect even more with one another in service. There's something I've found interesting during this time is that um, everyone is open to connect with one another right now. I've done family video chats with both mine and Andrea's families multiple times over the past three weeks. We've never done that before. We've gone three week spans without seeing each other a lot. I live four and a half hours away. And yet, we are wanting to connect with one another. Our community group conversations, though in a way they seem disembodied and hollow, there's also a level of deepness and meaningfulness to those conversations as if we're hungry, so much more hungry to connect with one another. I'm connecting with old friends in ways that I hadn't before. There, there's a deep need for all of us right now to, to, to connect 
And we can serve one another through this right now in ways that we never did before. People are hungry for connection, and you can move towards them in that. Don't miss that opportunity. Text and check in on your parents. Call that friend. Bring the singles in your community group dinner this week and leave it on their porch. Connect with, call them. Tell them you love them. Tell them you can't wait to hug them again one day. Don't miss out on this opportunity to serve one another because we are all hungry for it right now. And in that service, we both emulate and glorify Christ the King. So we have seen that we must take Christ to who He is, not who we want Him to be. And we've seen that He is the sovereign King and the servant King. And now we're going to see He's the sympathetic King. Um, I'm running out of time, as always. So I'm going to speed through this when Jesus entered into um, Jerusalem, in Luke's telling of the gospel, here's what he did. Verses 41 through 42 of the 19th chapter of Luke says this, and it should be on your screen. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. He entered into the city, and he wept. And he wasn't weeping for himself. He was weeping for the people who missed it. And he's weeping for his chosen people who've been waiting hundreds and thousands of years for the Messiah who missed it. Jesus wept for them. Christ is the sympathetic king because he weeps over the fallenness and brokenness of the world. He sees us in our anxiety and in our fear right now and he weeps for us. He sympathizes with us. N.T. Wright wrote an article this week titled, Christianity Offers No Answers for the Coronavirus. It's not supposed to. And if you have a chance, read it. I can post this in the comments on Facebook. The title is sensationalized, uh, if not true. But his point is that our modern evangelical church doesn't have a language of how to engage with the brokenness and the lament that we are feeling right now. Wright says, uh, rationalist, Christian rationalists want explanations. Romantics, Christian romantics want to be given a sigh of relief. But perhaps what we need more than either is to recover the biblical tradition of lament. Christian optimists want to say that everything is going to be okay. Christian pessimists want to say that we should expect terrible things to happen. But I think the Bible, including the Psalms, which the majority of them are laments, would instruct us to lament during this time. Wright says that lament is what happens when people ask why and don't get an answer. It's where we get to when we move beyond our self-centered worry about our sins and failings and look more broadly at the suffering of the world. Here's the truth. It's a hard, difficult, broken time right now in the world. And as Christians, we have a language to talk about that, and it's called lament. We can grieve the pain that we and the world is suffering right now, and, and that might be the most biblical thing that we can do. It's recognizing the pain that we are feeling, the grief of not being able to go to the coffee shop, not being able to hug a friend, and actually sitting in it and crying out to God and saying, why, oh Lord, come soon, set this place right again. The God we see in the Bible laments over the fallenness of the world. Jesus weeps over the death of friends and family. We see him anguish on the cross. We lament because in our lament, we find the sympathetic king who's lamenting with us. 
I would rather be antsy or frustrated or annoyed or inconvenienced than to actually feel the grief that I'm feeling right now. And yet we have to. And to truly lament what is happening in the city and the nation and the world almost seems too big of a task. And yet if we do, I wonder how much we would find a sympathetic king who's sitting with us in it. Um, it's odd, I think, to um, bring us back around to Tiger King, so I probably won't even do it. Um, but I will say that after watching the whole thing, though I was amused and um, had a, a blast watching that docuseries, I felt a little gross at the end. Um, and I think I felt gross because I felt that desire to be drawn to these people who um, actually did a lot of really messed up and broken stuff. And I have to take them for who they are. They're not as fun as they seem. And we have to take Jesus for who he is because he is as good as he seems. And he is as powerful as he seems. He's as sympathetic as he seems. He's as sovereign as he seems. And truly, he serves us more than we realize. Meet that king this morning on this Palm Sunday. He is here. He is with you even in your living room. As your kids, some of your kids are running around. As you're sitting with your spouses or you're sitting alone, Christ is with you. Christ loves you. Christ died for you. Amen.